0: please turn in your Bibles to the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 40 and reading from verse 12. You'll find that on page 600 in the church Bibles. It is a natural follow-on from what uh, Craig was praying, and in light of circumstances not least in our national life, Isaiah chapter 40, reading at verse 12, page 600 in the church Bibles. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of God's hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom, then, will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell him, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off to stubble. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Now, you'll need in your hands a copy of the service sheet. And uh, if you open it up to the section where we've laid out the chapter we're looking at, in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now Let me just uh, orientate us into this. As a church, Chalmers has a confession or statement of faith. It is called the Westminster Confession. As a church, we hold the Bible to be the rule in faith and life and no other. But we have as a subordinate statement the Westminster Confession, where the fundamental truths of the Christian faith in the Bible are summarized in systematic form. Now, there are copies of the Confession at the back of the church, and you're welcome to take one as you leave. The Confession has 33 chapters, and we will take one at a time. The plan is that we'll come back to this on a regular basis in our Sunday schedule, for example, once or twice every term in between our regular series that work through Bible books. So it will take us, I think, three or four years to get through it. Now, when we began with chapter one a few weeks ago, I was a little tentative, partly because chapter one had ten sections. Chapter two is much more sensible. But many of you have commented to me since We looked at chapter 1, how helpful you found that first study. It is surely important for us as a church to know what we believe. It is important for us to wrestle with what defines our corporate life as a church. It is helpful for you to know what you are to hold me accountable to. And the elders. And as we study this confessional statement, we stand on the shoulders of giants, on the basis of a statement that has guided the church through endless controversies over the centuries, kept the church faithful to the scriptures, exposed drift exposed radical shift from the scriptures in different points of history. And at the same time, it is wonderful, heartwarming, practical stuff. It is not for the few with an historic interest, nor for the few with an academic interest, nor for the few of us with a theological interest. It is a real practical interest and benefit to us all. Supremely, I think, because the key controversies and issues we face in the church at the beginning of the 21st century are exactly the same issues as the confession has faced up to now one of the books i 'm using to help me help us understand the confession comments that chapter two, God and the Holy Trinity, which is our focus this morning, is and I quote the worst wonderful English written outside of scripture, that's what they say, and the hardest to understand at the same time. Now, I think both of the sides of that coin are a little exaggerated, but not entirely. So we need God's help. Let's pray and ask for it. Our Father, our prayer is simple. Please help us understand who you are, what a dangerous prayer that is to pray. But not merely for our interest, but that it might transform us in mind and heart as we come to terms with who you are. Amen. Now, chapter 2 of the Confession is on God and the Holy Trinity. You'll see in the service sheet, if you look at that, that it is divided into three sections. And uh, I have... Uh, also given you the scriptural proof texts that undergird the explanation. And uh, I've done that to remind us that the Confession summarizes the doctrines of the Christian faith out of the Bible, doesn't find them anywhere else. Now the titles to the three sections I've added by way of explanation, so you'll see section one, I've uh, given it the title, The Nature and Being of God. Or I guess it answers the question, who are you, God? What are you like? Section 2, God in relation to us. So God, how he stands in relation to us as we sit here. And then section 3, God and the Holy Trinity. Now there are three sections. That means a three-point sermon. But there are 52 sub-points. There are 52 phrases. Or words to define, and we cannot do it all. I promise you that I'll try and tackle some of the hardest ones and leave some of the easier ones for our digestion. Now, what I want us to do first, though, and this may well be the best thing we do this morning, is to read sections one and two as a whole. And I want to encourage you to concentrate and allow... This is not scripture, but it's wonderfully written. Allow the content of this as a whole to make its impression on your mind and your heart, which is what we mean by engaging our affections. This is a description of who God is in its totality. So let's read section one. There is... But one only living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory. Most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath ...most sovereign dominion over them to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. Now, my instincts are to send you home or to send you off for a quiet walk around the beautiful environment of Pollock Halls and pray humbly before God in thankfulness for what we have read of him. There is a big part in my heart, and I'm sure you can bear with me on this, that all I'm about to do is clutter this up. Right, you're with me. What is the point of all of it? What is it saying? It is saying that God alone and no one else or nothing else is the center of the universe. It is saying that no one or nothing else comes remotely close, indeed comes close in any way to who God is and what that means and what this challenges is a worldview an outlook on the world that is human centered where we are the masters where we have the power where we are in charge where we call the shots the 19th century poet swinburne wrote this glory to man in the highest for man is the master of things the confession and the bible writes glory to god in the highest for god is the master Of all things. Now, to grasp and to believe the heart of what the confession states here means or results for the Christian in confidence in God. So, as we survey the events of the past week in our nation, which are significant, the question on all our hearts surely is what of the future? Who will lead us? Who will govern us? And how? We stand almost this morning with no one governing us. And no one left in the opposition. Things will settle, I'm sure. But who will govern us and lead us and how? If we look out on the world beyond our own nation, these questions are just as real. We make decisions. We vote. Politicians make decisions. But in whom do we and they and us all as human beings place our trust and confidence for now and for the future? Not in ourselves, or in any politician. Nor should any politician place their confidence in themselves or any other politician. But the Bible says to us, God's word, in him and in him alone. For he is the center of the universe, the world, the destiny of nations and all peoples. Confidence, confidence, In God, in uncertain times, the only true and real and lasting assurance is to be found in Him. And is that not the case as we look to the future of our nation and our world? If you look at Scotland as a nation, there are more question marks and more uncertainties regarding the future of our nation politically, spiritually, morally and on every other count, than perhaps there have ever been in hundreds and hundreds of years. To whom do we look for its future? To whom do we trust it? And what is true on the political landscape, nationally and globally, is as true in the landscape of our lives. Wherein do you, as you sit here, and as I stand here, place your confidence for today, tomorrow, and all the days of your life, and death, and eternity, It is either A, in yourself, or B, in the one true living God. A Christian worldview, a God-centered worldview, means not only confidence in God, but dependence on Him. Many of the hymns get this so powerfully. We sang last Sunday morning, We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. I will trust in you alone. Confidence, dependence. What does this confessional statement do to your heart as a Christian? It renders you humble before your God. As Christians, we are in great danger of underestimating God, of domesticating God, of taming God, Christian worldview like this gives us confidence, dependence, humility, and straight line, simple obedience. We do what he says. Now, many of us here are Christians, not all, but many of us, and we do have a God centered worldview. But as we turn now to look at some of the detail, let me ask you this question How big is the God? that is the God of your worldview? How big is he? Now, let me comment just on bits and pieces of the detail. Section one, the nature and being of God. Now, section one is like a symphony. There are three movements in this section covering the greatness of God, the love of God, and the severity of God. God. Just let me pause at that point. Think of the logic of this. The greatness of God, the love of God, and the mercy of God, and the severity and judgment of God that underpins it all. Where, where does most or much of the theology in the church today stop? The greatness of God, then the love of God, and there's a line. The confession runs, the greatness of God, the mercy of God, the severity of God. There's a completeness to it. And when you have the severity of God, it renders the love of God real. Let's read again. The greatness of God. There is but one only living and true God. What a powerful statement that is. One God, one living God, one true God. All human-centered religion is space for many gods, many ways to God. And the extreme of human-centered religion. Is I am God. I am God of my life. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection. Infinite means, I think, something like without bounds or limits. The contrast is with finite. We are finite and limited and are circumscribed by our creaturehood and, of course, our sin. Not God. He is infinite without bounds and limits, in his being and in his perfection. So Job cries out, 11 and 7, Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? God is a most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts or passions. Now that is striking. How do you think of God? How do you conceptualize God? in your mind, as a human being? Well, yes, that is right. If you are talking about the incarnate Son, the Lord Jesus, the Word who became flesh, but that comes later in the confession, and that should not limit our conception of God. God chose to reveal himself in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus, but that is not the limit of God nor the sum of God. Here God is described as a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, or passions. So Jesus, the incarnate word, said to the woman of Samaria in John 4, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. We're going to sing later in the service these words that are so familiar to us, but do we realize what we're singing? Immortal, invisible, God only wise hid from our eyes where is god in the person of the incarnate word in a human jesus but that is not the sum of god where is god he is pure spirit he is everywhere there is no part of the universe where god is not can you see him no Is he here? Yes. You know, when a preacher says, is God here? And the answer is yes. Sometimes I think we can default to think, well, God is kind of here because we're all gathering here. And the preacher is preaching. And God is kind of anointing his word with his spirit. That may or may not be true. But God is just everywhere always. God is immutable, that means unchangeable, not in the sense that he is consistent, although he is, but that God has no need to change. He is perfect, so he is bound to be unchangeable since he can neither get bigger nor improve nor become more knowledgeable than he is. He is immutable and he is immense. Solomon, who built the most immense and grand temple that one could ever build, 1 Kings eight twenty-seven said this on the day that he dedicated that great building. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. So look up into the sky and you get a glimpse, a tiny glimpse of the immensity of space. The universe is immense. What of the God who created it? Is he not immense? Immense is the perfect word these Westminster divines have chosen. It is immense. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? What marvelous statements. There is but one only living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts or passions, immutable, immense, eternal. Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible. What that means, incomprehensible, is that you will never get to the back of God. You will never, ever fathom all that there is to fathom. I guess you may be experiencing this right now as we try to get our heads around what some of this stuff means. The fact that God is incomprehensible to us as humans leads to two reactions. One, arrogance. I will not accept that I will not know all things. or humility, that I have a finite mind. And he is incomprehensible. He is almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute. We cannot stop and dwell on every one of these stones, although each merits our attention. What about most free? Our God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases. Most absolute. Moses said to God, who are you? And he said, I am He he claims absolute comprehensiveness. And therefore, the confession states, he works all things together for the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory. How big is your conception of God now? At this moment of the symphony, in section one, the greatness of God reaches its climax and leaves you feeling or reeling, maybe frightened, overwhelmed as we grasp the greatness of God. One of the the, the, the responses to God that we've just lost out on in our generation is fear of God. Fear of Him. Fear of Him. I mean, He is scary. then the kind of brass that's blasting out the symphony in the orchestra goes silent. And there's a total change in what you hear. Let me just read that transition as we move from the greatness to the love of God. Working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory yet most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, and rewarded of them that diligently seeking. Now, these are eternal attributes or characteristics of God, that he is loving, he has always been, that he is gracious, he has always been merciful, and so on. But when humanity rebelled against God, rejecting his rule over them, God didn't all of a sudden change his heart to become these things. But of course we see it and feel it most of all that God out of his love for us in spite of our rebellion and rejection of him came to our rescue in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ forgiving iniquity, transgression and our sins. The greatness of God and the love of God. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. We're going to sing that. That's of the greatness of God that we cannot even find human words to describe his greatness and then we're going to sing Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm fine. And the confession is so right. To them, whether young or old, whether a child or a 90-year-old, who diligently seek after God, to those who diligently seek after him and lay hold of him in believing faith, he will reward them. And what greater reward can you and I have than the forgiveness of sins, the reconciliation to this holy God, the adoption as his children. What a reward. It's best been described as a king's ransom, which is exactly what it is. The greatness of God, the love of God. That's where our sermons often end, but the confession shifts The musical instruments that play here, somber, whatever that is, the severity of God. And the logic is that those who do not diligently seek Him, they will feel experience not the love of God, but the severity of God. And with all, God is most just and terrible in His judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. It's striking that the section ends with His severity, His judgment. And if there is a danger that our conception of God is too small, there is a danger that our conception of the gospel of God is without the judgment of God. And it is true, I think, that to speak of the love of God without the severity of God, to speak of the grace of God without the judgment of God cheapens his love and grace and beguiles us into thinking that it doesn't really matter whether or not we believe in Jesus. It matters more than anything in the world. And let me say to you as your minister, as your pastor, that Jesus is crystal clear and the Bible is crystal clear. That if we do not diligently seek after God, all the fury of the wrath of God will live on your head for all eternity. It's what he says. So it matters more than anything else in the world. Now, section two, five minutes, three minutes, two minutes on this. You're going to think that I've summarized the bits I can't understand. You're quite right. Now, Time doesn't permit a detailed study on this. It's God in relation to us. And the point being made in section two is to contrast who God is in himself with his creatures. His creatures mean angels, humans, and animals. It is a contrast between the creator and the created. And the difference is like vast. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. That is, in other words, it is in him that life and belongs natively. God is alone in and unto himself, all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made not deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. I think they would have failed in that five with all these prepositions. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, to whom, all things are. And hath most sovereign dominion over them to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible. He cannot be wrong, independent upon the creature. So as nothing is to him contingent by chance or uncertain, he is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from you and me and angels. And every animal, whatsoever worship, service, or obedience, he is pleased to require. Now that's tremendous stuff. The point of it, there is God and here we are. We are to obey him. God doesn't need us, we need him. God doesn't derive anything from us, we derive everything from him. God doesn't ask for us of our worship, service, or obedience. He is pleased to require of us what he wills. He demands of us because he is God. And that leads us to the third and final section on the Holy Trinity. The sheer vastness and greatness of God is diversified into three distinct persons. One God, but three persons. Let me read this, make a couple of comments on it, and then we're done. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. And then a sentence of explanation. The Father is of none, that is, from none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. In other words, there has never been a time when Jesus the Son was not in existence. So John 1 and 1 in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then the Word became flesh. Jesus came to earth. Back to the confession, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. What begotten means, I don't think anyone knows. I just haven't found anyone who can give me an adequate explanation of what begotten means. And we have to acknowledge that there are some mysteries. The Son always has been. But he was begotten. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. There was never a time when the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, was not in existence. What proceeds mean? Well, I don't know. Now, the doctrine, the truth about one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is in some respects a mystery beyond our ability to understand or comprehend. And we need to remember in all of this that we can only understand this in part because the mechanisms and means that we have to understand it is finite, it's language. And language cannot contain all that there is of God any more than we can put God in a box or put God in some space. God is everywhere. He is invisible. He is pure spirit. Yet this doctrine of the Trinity is of profound practical importance because each person of the Holy Trinity is integral to our salvation. As humanity, we were created by God, yet we rebelled against him. But God, out of his great love for us, came to us in the person of his Son, the Word Jesus, made flesh as a man, a human, to set aside his majesty and in humility, to die as the perfect atoning sacrifice for sin, that we might be forgiven, Father and Son all that Jesus has achieved for us becomes ours through the indwelling Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. God himself, that pure spirit. God himself, that pure spirit living in us. A spirit that adopts us, that enables us to cry, Abba, Father, a spirit of transformation, our comforter, our helper, our teacher, our inspiration, our empowerment for witness to the gospel. And what an astonishing thing it is That the God that is immortal, invisible, and only wise is the God that Newton spoke of. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me is the God who lives in us by the Holy Spirit that enabled you to get up this morning and say in your breakfast prayers, My Father. Now, astonishing, these connections. now the Lord Jesus has gone back to the Father. But the Holy Spirit that proceeds from the Father and the Son dwells within us so that I can call. And remember the words in section one of the confession here. Just think on this. I'm trying to connect these lines. The one living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible without body parts or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, is my Father. And he lives in me. And this pure divine spirit lives within me and is unsullied by my mortal flesh. It transforms my mortal flesh into the likeness of Christ, but my mortal flesh cannot touch, cannot Take any of the purity of God that is within me from God'sness within me. It's wonderful stuff. And surely, as we dwell on this, in light of the uncertainty in the world, in our nation, in your life and mine, it gives us confidence, assurance, dependence, humility, and obedience. Well, let's pray together. Father God, these are great and complex things to grasp. We pray that in some way, shape, or form this morning, we would have grasped bits and pieces of this, and that it would have gripped our minds and hearts and roused up within us our affections for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that the great God of highest heaven of whom we will sing, immortal and visible, God only wise and light and accessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, Almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Just releases into a very different set of words as we reflect on the Lord Jesus' amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. And as we think on Jesus, where is he? He is with you in glory. And yet, out of the Son and out of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeds. And God, this most pure spirit, lives within our bodies. And causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. And comforts us. And groans within us. And changes us. And is the guarantee that one day we will be with you in all eternity in glory, where there will only be that perfection that is the description of all that you are. Lord, help us as Christians to have confidence in you in troubled days. May we be always dependent on you and in you. Humble us before your majesty and help us to obey you And if we are not yet Christians, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, that convicting, comforting, kindly spirit that opens eyes of the blind, will you lead us to Jesus, the incarnate word in whom there is salvation to be found. And may we throw our Lord in with him for now, for life, for death, for all eternity. And may every impulse of our hearts now as we sing be reflected back to give you glory but to encourage one another as we relish all that it means to call you Father. In his name.